Lord says, because you have made yourself a worshiping church, a church that will praise me and worship me, and go beyond the limits, and go beyond the flesh, and go beyond all the feelings. Because this is a church that worships. That's the, I just keep hearing that from the Lord. That's a church that worships. This is a church that worships. Because it's a church that worships, I will show up, says the Lord. I will be here in your midst. This is what I seek. This is what I long for. We have made the decision to worship, but he's labeled us that this morning. We are a worshiping church. And because of that, not that it's been the goal, but he is going to show up and do mighty and awesome things. Grace Christian Center, the worshiping church. And all of heaven knows. I have declared this to be a worshiping church. But are you one of the worshipers? There are many in my church, my body, those who are my children, who enter into times of praise and worship like this, but they start to get bored. That's nothing but the flesh rising up against your spirit. For your spirit relishes these times. Your spirit thoroughly enjoys these times of worship because it produces times of fellowship. Do not let yourself become bored during these times. Because that is a sign that your mind is drifting away from what I am trying to do. Many would think that that is not the proper way to say it. That I am trying to do. But you see, I cannot do anything in you if you don't let me. I'm trying But if you don't let me, then I can't. So when I tell you that I am trying, it means I'm with you. And I am trying to work a work inside you. Yield to me. Let me do this. You must cast down the imaginations, the thoughts of boredom, the thoughts that begin to drift away from what I am doing. Capture your mind and bring it back into focus so that you're concentrating on me as you worship. When you do this, I will become more and more real to you. This will help you learn to better trust me in every aspect of your life. Please understand, 
I am a perfect and holy God, and I cannot fail you. I cannot fail you. I can only do you good. And the good that I do in your life is to bring about that which is perfection before me. Working in you to bring you to the place of being fully conformed to the image of the glory of my Son. So do not allow yourself to become bored during worship. Instead, cast those imaginations down. Do not let them exalt themselves against or above me and worship me. Worship me out of your spirit, which is a worship that goes beyond worship out of your mind. Worship me out of your spirit and experience a greater depth of fellowship with me and a completed work in you that I will do, says the Lord. Would you please turn to Matthew chapter 24? Matthew chapter 24. And really, you know, Matthew 24 and beyond goes to um, really all the way to the end of chapter 25. Some of the most powerful passages relative to what's coming. And in Matthew 24, in verse 3, says, As he, meaning Jesus, sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming, and of the end of the world? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, or uh, more clearly, I am of Christ, or I am sent of Christ, or I am a representative of Christ, and shall deceive many. And in verse 11, and many false prophets shall rise, and shall deceive many. Then if you look in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. And just uh, pick this up in... Well, what's happening, Jesus is coming to the end of what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And we pick this up in Matthew 7, verse 13. He says, Enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. But straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life. And few there be... That find it. Now let's stop right there. In Matthew 24, he said, In answer to your question, fellows, you want to know the sign of my return, the signs of the end of the world. Well, first and foremost, you better take heed that no one deceives you because there are going to be a lot of people come in my name declaring that they have a message from me and they're going to speak forth those words, those sermons, those teachings, and it will be a great deception. 
And then later on in that chapter, it's like he reminds him again, many false prophets are going to rise and deceive many. Now, he's talking about within the body of Christ. You know, years ago, I mean, long time ago, you know, I thought he was talking about, you know, out there in the world, but then the more I read that, I realized he's talking about within the body of Christ. Many are going to rise, false prophets. Then here, he says in Matthew 7, enter the straight gate, wide is the gate, broad is the way that leads to destruction. Many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Now, I understand the concept of here's the gospel, and if you want to go to heaven, you know, you need to accept Jesus and walk this path of salvation. And a lot of people are going to do that, but then you have a lot of people who are going to take this wide gate and the broad way, and it's going to lead to destruction. And, you know, they're going to reject the gospel. Okay, I understand that. Totally understand it. Look at this from the perspective, though, of the kingdom. Now, let's keep in mind, the people he's teaching at this time, Sermon on the Mount, the majority of that group, however many thousands there were that day, they were Jews. Do you understand that? Now, there may indeed have been some Gentiles in the midst, but the, mo- the majority of them were Jews. Prophetically, the Jews represented on earth the relationship that God wanted to have with humanity, but couldn't because they didn't have a life like his. You understand what I'm saying? Try to clarify. And you can, Paul goes into this in Romans in great detail. Out of all the, the people groups in the world, Russians, Chinese, and, and, uh, you know, Nigerians, and Costa Ricans, and I mean, just all these people groups, God picked this group called the Jews. He could have picked the Russians. He could have picked the Canadians. <laughs> he, he could have picked people from Kentucky. He could have picked... Do you understand what I'm getting at? He had all these people in the world, but he chose to work with this group here. And he gave them the law and his word. And he said, okay. And all I'm doing now is paraphrasing what's recorded in the book of Romans. He said... I'm going to give this to you. Well, really, it's kind of paraphrased in more places than just Romans. But he says, okay, all you Jewish people, listen up. I'm going to tell you what it takes to be what I wanted you to be, going all the way back there in Genesis chapter 1. You do realize Adam and Eve, they weren't Jews, right? You understand that. Yeah, I hope you do. So he says, okay, I want you guys, I want you to know. So he says, you know, here's the law, here are the prophets. He said, okay. Do it. And then he just sat back and watched. Well, they couldn't. That's why God threw in all the sacrifices. Because if it were just a natural thing, 
for them to live the way he wanted them to live. Thou shalt not have, and thou shalt not do, and thou shalt have, and thou shalt do. If it were just something that oozed out of their pores, you wouldn't need any sacrifices. You understand that? So in essence, it's like he's saying, okay, here's what I want you to do to live before me. But I already know you can't. So to make up for your shortcomings, which is really your sin nature, you kill this, you kill that, and here's what you do with the blood, so on and so forth. Well, that became, if you will, to them, their salvation. What do I mean? When Jesus came along and began explaining about the kingdom and the transition, they really were challenged by that. When he began presenting himself and and, uh, fulfilling the law and the prophets, proving that he indeed was the Christ, they were challenged by that because what it meant was accepting a whole different belief system and no longer doing stuff to be, quote, saved. And so... When Jesus is teaching about enter the straight gate, why is the gate? He's talking primarily to people who understood God gives us His Word. Heathens didn't understand this because they never had it to begin with. So when He says, enter at the gate, wide is the gate, broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, narrows the gate, and so forth, what He's saying is, There is a way to live with me and for me. And this way is narrow when it's compared to all the stuff that's out there in the world. Now think about this for a moment. Was it a wide gate, wide path for the Jews living under the law? No, it wasn't. It was narrow. You know, you can't do this, you can't do that, you got it this day and that week and this month, you gotta kill this, kill that, eat this, don't eat that. You understand? That was narrow. Very narrow. Truthfully, from the outward doing part of it, it's a whole lot wider for us. Because no longer do we have to grab the calendar and say, oh, okay, when does that feast start? When does this festival start? Okay, you know, when am I supposed to build that tent and get out there in it? Okay, we don't have to work. When we walk into a restaurant, whatever's on the menu, other than the booze, whatever's on the menu, we can order it, eat it. You want ribs? Have at it. You want pork chops? Go for it. You want bacon? Yeah. Okay, you can do that. So it's a whole lot wider from that perspective. So obviously... He's not focusing on a natural something here. He's focusing on a spiritual something. Enter at the gate, the straight gate. Wide is the gate. Broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. Many there be that go in thereat, because straight is the gate. Narrow is the way which leadeth unto life. Few there be that find it. Okay, what is the narrow way? It's what God has said in His Word. Compared to what the flesh wants to do. 
This path we're on is a narrow way. But not only that, compared to conforming to the image of Christ and what so much religion presents, the path gets even more narrow. You understand what I mean by that? Because, let's put it like, okay, a lot of people want to talk about, well, the sovereignty of God and the, you know, God's will and so forth and how that, um, well, here's one that I've heard. When God wants me to speak in tongues, He's just going to make me do it. That's wide path. Narrow path is, you have to receive it. And you have to open your mouth and you have to be the one to do it. Now he says, enter the straight gate because the gate is wide that leadeth unto destruction. The gate is narrow. The path is narrow. The way is narrow that leads unto life. Few there be that find it. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravening wolves. He's, he's not changing the subject here. He's warning you against wide path preachers. See this? He's not, he, he's not saying, okay, let's move on guys. You know, next topic. Beware of false prophets. No. He's telling you, enter in the straight, the narrow path gate. This is how you do it. And you better beware of false prophets because they will present to you another way. They're going to present to you something that is, well, this path that we're walking, you know, all paths lead to God. I mean, that is a really, you know, out there uh, way to describe it. But that's kind of what this is talking about. Continue here. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravening wolves. Now you have to understand, these false prophets that come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravening wolves, they don't know they are. Look, only an absolute fool idiot is going to come to you with the purpose of teaching you something that will take you to hell. I mean, you have to be absolutely stupid. I mean, just so mentally messed up to do something like that. So these guys aren't doing this thinking, I'm going to mess up your life. No, they think they're helping you. And he says, beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing. You know them by their fruits. What primarily, what would that be? What comes out of their mouth? Do men gather grapes of thorns? Or figs or thistle, of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit. But a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. Neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. This is kind of similar to what James was writing about. You know, the, the salty water and the good, fresh, clean water. And, you know, they can't both come from the same source. Well, he says, verse 19, Every tree that bringeth not good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. The Bible tells us in the Old Testament that um, we are, those of us, it was prophesying about, um, about Jesus and so forth. Anyway, those of us who accept Him, the Bible says 
that we are the trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. Alright? Now, he says here, every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Here's the image he's presenting. You have this, this forest. You have this, all these trees. But not all of them are going to produce good fruit. Now over in, alright, we're coming right back here to Matthew chapter 7. Look over in Jude real quickly. You need to see this process. And since there's only one chapter in Jude, you shouldn't have too much trouble here. (laughs) In Jude, um, it says here in verse uh, 12, These are spots in your feast of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. Clouds they are without water, carried about of winds. Now look, trees whose fruit withereth, without fruit, twice dead, Plucked up by the roots. Are you seeing a process here? The trees, their fruit is withering. Meaning, at one time, they had had some decent fruit on them. But, because they're corrupt at the root, because corruption has set in, it doesn't happen overnight. Well, their fruit has begun to wither to the point where now they're without fruit, twice dead, and then plucked up by the roots. Go back to Matthew 8. Verse 19. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. He didn't say every tree that brings no fruit, every tree that brings forth no good fruit. He says, is hewn down and cast into the fire. Now, I shouldn't have to go into a whole lot of explanation about the cast into the fire and what that represents. These are trees, the planting of the Lord, that had fruit. However, they're no longer producing good fruit. And he says, they're cast into the fire, hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. And then in verse 21, it's almost like he says, if you don't understand the whole concept of the fruit and trees, Let me make it a little more clear to you. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Many people say, well, this verse 23 proves that he's not talking about folks who are Christians. Okay, I'm not, we don't have time to get into all the nuances of the, the Greek language in this. But that is not what this is saying. Now, if you back up, he says, look, not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone. Not everyone. He says, but the ones who do the will of my Father. He says, Many you're going to say to me in that day. In what day? What is that day? Well, don't turn to it now, but go to the end of the book of Revelation and start reading. It's that day. Judgment. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name cast out devils? And in thy name done many wonderful works? 
He never said they didn't. Look at this. Then I will profess unto you, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. He never called them liars. He never said, well, you never prophesied in my name. He didn't say, well, you never cast down any devils. What are you talking about? He didn't look at them and say, what? You never did many wonderful works in my name. And he didn't say that. What he says is, you're now a worker of iniquity. Now let me kind of explain here. At one time, you were a tree bearing a good kind of fruit. And yeah, you prophesied in my name. Yeah, you cast out devils. You did many wonderful works. However, you began to rot at the root. And it got to the point to where your fruit started withering. Then it got to the point to where you weren't bearing good fruit. And now you're going to be hewn down and cast into the fire. Are you capturing the imagery he's presenting here? Now here's what we have. Well, in fact, turn over to, to Luke 13. See this um, presented a little bit differently. Luke 13. Now notice what he says here, beginning in verse 24. Strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. Can you see this is a variation of what we just read over there in Matthew. He says, when once the master of the house is risen up, and has shut the shut to the door, and you begin to stand without and knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us. And he shall answer and say unto you, I know not whence ye are. That ye shall begin to say, We have eaten and, and drunk in thy presence, and thou hast taught in our streets. But he shall say, I tell you, I know you not whence ye are. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. Then shall there be weeping and gnashing of teeth, when ye shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves thrust out. And they shall come from the east, from the west, from the north, from the south, and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. And behold, there are last which shall be first, and there are first which shall be last. Now back up here in verse 25. When once the master of the house is risen up and hath shut to the door, and ye began to stand without and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us, and he shall answer and say unto you, I know you not whence ye are. This verse 25. Does this remind you of anything? How about this? As it was in the days of Noah. What happened with Noah? God shut the door of the ark. And what do you think happened after that? The rain is coming down. The fountains of the deep open up. You don't think there were people standing outside that ark, pounding on the door, let us in, let us in, let us in. They're out there trying to tread water. I mean, how many of them do you think knew how to swim? It's not like they could go down to the local YMCA and take lessons. And here they are, pounding, please, please let us in. They died. Because the Lord had shut the door. And he says here, You're going to proclaim, we've eaten and drunk in your presence. In other words, we had fellowship with you. 
We shared time with you. You taught in our street. Now again, symbolically, but we, we heard your voice. We experienced your teaching. And he says, yeah, well, the problem though is now you've become a worker of iniquity. In other words, your fruit has withered and died. And he says, weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, Abraham, Isaac, and the prophets. What does this, what's this mean to prophets? We understand Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but what's he talking about? The prophets, the people that have stood up. Now, let me broaden this. The people that have stood up Old Testament and New Testament and declared, this is the way, walk ye in it. This is the way. This narrow path. To your emotions, it's a narrow path. But to your spirit, it's a path of glory. And he says, in verse 29, And they shall come from the east and west and north and south and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. Folks, that's revival. That, they're, they're coming. God, look, get a hold of this. Jesus says they are coming from all directions. They're coming in. He didn't say they're coming into this church. He said they're coming into the kingdom. And that's what it's all about. And then when he says, Behold, there are last which will be first, and first which shall be last. I'm not going to go into to great depth in this one, but essentially think about it like this. All these people that have pro, uh, promoted themselves as being the great somethings in church. All these people that seem to pride themselves on having the million dollar sound systems and lighting systems and the fog machines and all this stuff. We've got the best singers. We've got CDs and, and we're on all the uh, internet sites for downloading the music and, you know, we got it. We got it made. We got it made. And, and the, the praise and worship it too often, I mean, great, great songs, but it's more concert than it is true, genuine praise and worship unto God. Oh, Okay, he's saying those people that have been made first, you need to understand they're not really first in my kingdom. And they're going to come last. And those of you who don't really think there's much going on, but yet you are pressing into me, you're the ones that are going to be first. You're the ones. See, people would look at this church and they would, you need to understand how many, how many people are your, is your church running there, Pastor Martin? Well, you know, if everybody showed up at the same time, which has never yet happened, but if everybody showed up at the same time, <laughs> you know, maybe 60, I don't know. And you've been there how long? Well, let's see here, I'm, you know, 20 minutes. What? You've been there? And that's, oh, you know, why are you wasting your time? You need to go somewhere where something's happening. Why don't you? Yeah, I do understand. I'm where God wants me. And the problem with that is what? Yeah, but you've got so much to offer. You've got so... If I'm offering it to God, what difference does it make? (laughs) Yeah, I've got so much to offer, but it's to be offered to Him. And if He wants it used here, fine. If He wants it used there, fine. Now, now here's, here's what I'm getting at in all this. What we see there in Matthew 24, Matthew 7, Luke 13. Jesus is presenting a process. And this process is, you have some people, in other words, everything starts out great. But then you have people that start sliding off in the wrong direction. Now, it doesn't happen overnight. 
but they start sliding off in the wrong direction. He identifies the ultimate end result of that sliding in the wrong direction. But it's a process. So what you have are a lot of people over here who are, I mean, they are on that narrow, they, they are center on that narrow path. You follow what I'm saying? They're, they're not even close to the edge. They are centered, kind of like these lights that run right down the middle of this main aisle here in the sanctuary. They are, boom, centered. And from there, you have people who, really? They're all, they're so far over here on the other side, they've jumped off. Don't even know they've jumped off. But they've jumped off. But you have a huge gap in between. In other words, there's a separation. And it's not that God is saying, okay, you know what, I want you on the broad path, so get out of here. And you, I want on the narrow path, so I don't care if you don't want to be over here. No, it's not like that. We decide. Jesus said, choose which path you're going to walk. Now we see here in Luke 13:29, this is revival. But the revival doesn't just happen. Now we've talked a lot about, you know, Joel's army. And we're not going to go back and read in, in that. You know, it's been taught in the past. You can go back and get those messages. But we've talked about Joel's army and how that Joel's army is involved in this end time move. But there's another army in Scripture that helps identify who's in Joel's army. Who? It's not every Christian, because we're seeing Jesus give us a description of people, you know, the, the whole range of people serving him who all started out on the same, I mean, we were all on the same starting line. And some are continuing focused on him, and others, well, they were for a while, but they've drifted off. But who is it that's actually in Joel's army? And without going back to um, to reading about Joel, there is another passage in Scripture that lets us know who it is that is qualified to be used by God in Joel's army. You go back to Judges chapter 6, and you'll see this. Judges chapter 6. See, the whole aspect of being used by God here at the end is totally up to us. God is not going to just turn you into a water-walking, miracle-producing saint unless you do something to help Him facilitate that through you. Now here in Judges chapter 6, it says, The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian seven years. All right, there's a lot of symbolism in this. Keep this in mind. But let's put it like this. The children of God have done evil in the sight of the Lord, and their evil has separated them from the full presence of the Lord and caused them to be delivered into the hand of the, well, Scripture would call it Gentiles, but we'll call it the ungodly. Now, if you don't think that's happening, if you don't 
Keep your finger here and turn to Isaiah. I, I cannot in any way teach what he showed me about this in Isaiah. But let me, this will kind of exemplify. What we're getting ready to read, Isaiah was delivering this message to the nation of Israel. However, it's prophetic for the body of Christ today. Um, the vision of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, when he, uh, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they, and they have rebelled against me. How does the Lord nourish and bring up children? The moment that you're born again, you're birth of his spirit. So he's nourishing you. He's doing what he can to raise you up. And he says, however... Even though you've been born of my spirit, you know, I'm looking across the family here and I, you've rebelled against me. And he says, look, the ox knoweth his owner and the ass his master's crib, his master's crib, but Israel doth not know. My people doth not consider. In other words, you're dumber than an ox. Or you're dumber than a, the other animal there. You're a dumb ox and you're a... Yeah. <laughs> okay, now that's that's kind of a modern version here, but you see what he's saying? He's saying even the animals are smart enough to know who to go to. And you have rebelled against me and I'm the one that birthed you. Ah, sinful nation. A people laden with iniquity. A seed of evildoers. Children that are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. They are gone away backward. Why should you be stricken anymore? Will you revolt more and more? The whole head is sick. And the heart, the whole heart faint. In other words, why do you keep putting up with all this stuff that's going, why, this stuff that's happening in this country? You do realize it's because of the failures of the body of Christ. The rebellion of the body of Christ. Do you understand the body of Christ is the overseer of this nation? We, the body of Christ, can protect this nation from anything. How do you figure that, Brother Martin? The very fact you're answering that question proves you have rebelled against God and His Word and you do not know who you are in Christ or where you stand. Because we have God's ear. You understand that? We have His ear. We're born of His Spirit. And He says... Why should you be stricken anymore? Will you revolt more and more? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even under the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. They have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. Okay, what's he talking about? He's looking at our spiritual condition. He's looking, think of it like this. Outwardly, your body may be in great shape, but he says, on the inside, you guys have corrupted yourself. He says, children of corruption, you, you have corrupted yourself so much that when I look at you, what I see are your spirits where there is no soundness. I see your spirits full of wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. That's gross. I mean, that is grossly gross. 
They've not been closed. Wounds that, that haven't been opened, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. That mollified with ointment, symbolically what that talks about is you have rejected the operation of the Holy Spirit and the anointing that He would want to pour into your life that would bring about a change and fix these things that's going on inside you spiritually. Now look at this, look at verse 7 and tell me if this is not us in this nation. Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your land, strangers devour it in your presence. And it is desolate as overthrown by strangers. Does that not speak to what we're seeing in this country now? Hey, quit being afraid of all the politically correct people. It's wrong. Hear me. It's wrong for people to come into this country illegally. I don't, if you, if you think otherwise, you're the one that's messed up. Our country has laws making it possible for people to come in. And if, if you will ignore the liberal, liberal crap that's being shoved down people's throats, you're going to understand all kinds of hardened criminals are coming into this country. This information has been buried from the media and they're not presenting the truth. You need to understand, people have come into this country and crime is going crazy. There are some cities in Texas right now, they don't know what to do because they are being overrun by the crime brought in by the illegal aliens. This is a prophetic message from God telling us, body of Christ, this is your fault, it is not Washington, D.C.'s. It is your fault. And he says, And the daughter of Zion is left as a cottage and a vineyard, as a lodge and a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. That's kind of strange, and I had to do some digging on this one. And I won't go into all of what it means, but what it represents is, you're out there isolated. And you're in, you're in overrun gardens and fields. You're like a besieged city. Now look at here, verse 9. Except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant. We should have been as Sodom and Gomorrah, and we should have been like unto Gomorrah. Now, I'm not going to go any further in this. I may teach on it uh, further later on. But God is saying, what we just read here in Isaiah, this is kind of like an expanded explanation of what was going on in Judges chapter 6, verse 1. And God in verse 9 says, where the prophet says, God's left to us, a remnant. A remnant of what? A remnant, prophetically, a remnant of believers. Now go back to Judges chapter 6. And in verse 2 it says, And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel, and because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made them dens, the dens which are in the mountains and caves and strongholds. Have any of you felt like that in order to truly worship God, you have to hide your faith from your workplace? From the school. Oh yeah. Do you know their uh, kids have been kicked out of school for talking about their faith in Jesus? Kids have been, well, I'm not gonna, you think I'm on a soapbox, I'm not. I'm trying to tell you the problems in this nation are based upon the fact that the body of Christ has been in rebellion to God. And not upheld His word. That is what, too many Christians want to blame Washington and whoever's in Washington. You know what? The right people would be in Washington if the Christians had done their part. But they haven't. And remember what I talked about earlier, what I shared with you, how Jesus presented to us in Matthew and Luke. 
You got the start. You got the people over here, and the, and the, the people that have just gone too far are going to be cast into the fire. But you've got all these people in between. Okay, in the body of Christ today, we've got a whole bunch of tweeners that are headed. I mean, they are like one step away from being cast into the fire. The squeaky wheel gets the gets the oil. All right. Too many Christians don't want to be the declarers of glory. They they just sit back and and they don't do anything. Never. You got Christians sitting in churches that are pastored by liberals who call themselves born again. <laughs> Say, brother Martin, where's this coming from? This is a wake up call to the body of Christ. God is saying, look. <laughs> You better get your act together because if you don't, there's some of you in this room right now, there are some things God has been dealing with you about and you have refused to change it. Some of you have put things on social media that do not belong there and bless God, you better repent and make it right and stop this stuff. Whatever you post on social media should not be a detraction away from the gospel. It should be, an, it should be something that identifies you as someone who walks in the holiness of God. And if you don't understand what I'm talking about, you need to pray about it. I shouldn't have to give an explanation. And he says here, so it was, verse 3, When Israel had sown, and the Midianites came up, and the Amalekites and the children of the east, they came up, came up and camped against them. And it says um, in verse 4, They camped against them and destroyed the increase of the earth till they'll come into Gaza. And left no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor ass. They came up with their cattle and their tents, and they came as grasshoppers for the multitude, for multitude for both they and their camels were without number, and they entered into the land to destroy it. At times, doesn't it feel like that we are just totally overwhelmed and outnumbered by all the liberal stuff and people out there? And he says here, and Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites, and the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. And it came to pass when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord because of the Midianites that the Lord sent a prophet unto the children of Israel. <laughs> Notice God didn't do anything until they cried out. See this? You've got Christians sitting back waiting for God to move. Who's crying out, guys? We should be the ones crying out. And if nobody else in the body of Christ is going to cry out, which I know many of them are, you know, we need to be those who are crying out. And he says that the Lord sent a prophet unto the children of Israel, which said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you forth out of the house of bondage. I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all that oppressed you and drove them out from before you and gave you their land. And I said unto you, I am the Lord your God. Fear not the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell, but ye have not obeyed my voice. Oh God, what's going on? Oh God, what's going on? Oh God, what's the answer? And God has been raising up prophets throughout the world. And these prophets have been declaring, here's the problem, just like what I've been doing this morning. Here's the problem. And you've got Christians out there like, no, 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 that can't be it. You know, you're trying to put us back into bondage. Legalism. You're a Pharisee. They don't want to hear it. I want God to move, but I do not want any accountability before Him. I want the easy life. And I don't want to have to prove anything to God. I don't want my heart to have to be right before Him. Well, verse 11, There came an angel of the Lord and sat under an oak, which was an Ophrah, that pertained to the Joash, 
the Abiezrite and his son Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him, Gideon, and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. <laughs> Gideon is hiding. He's threshing wheat, hiding. And an angel shows up and says, The Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. Can you imagine that? He's thinking, excuse me, I'm hiding. I'm trying to protect what little wheat I have. And you're calling me a mighty man of valor? You're saying that the Lord is with me? Seriously, who are you? Okay, now hold on just a moment. I stand here as the servant of Almighty God. And I'm telling you, whoever you are, you are a mighty man of valor or a mighty woman of valor. Regardless of what you think of yourself, the Lord says this is who you are. Now keep reading. And Gideon said unto him, O my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? And where be all his miracles? which our fathers told of us, told us of, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord hath forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Some of you guys, the way you talk, you are in line with this verse 13 confession more than you are with the confession of the angel of the Lord. You confess all this bad stuff. Oh, I just cannot stand Ooh, that, that, and you name the politician. Oh, when are they gonna, when are they, why do they let this stuff happen? Really? That's a verse 13 confession. That's not a confession, regardless of what that politician does. I am a mighty man or woman of valor. And the Lord is with me. Well, verse 14, and the Lord looked upon him, We've just gone from an angel of the Lord to the Lord. Kind of makes you wonder, who really is this talking to Gideon? And the Lord looked upon him and said, Go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent thee? <laughs> Do you not understand? You're supposed to be the, most more, the verse 14 person. God is telling us, Go in this thy might. Well, what do you mean, go in this thy might? Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. <laughs> Christ within me, the hope of glory. This is your might. This is my might. He says, do something. Because I, through you, you, you 19-year-old, you 25-year-old, you 30-year-old, you 85-year-old, you're a mighty person of valor before the Lord. I will work through you to bring about a deliverance in your nation, in this world, and revival. I will work through you. And verse 15, Gideon says, Oh my, oh wait a minute, look here, back up verse 14, uh, where he says, Have, at the end of verse 14, the Lord says, Have not I sent thee? See that? Gideon saying, When did you send me? When did you send me? I'm, I'm doing this wheat thing, hiding from the bad people. When did you send me? 
That's because God is speaking of things that aren't as though they were. Every one of you in here, listen to me, every single one of you in here, God has sent you. You watching, God has sent you. Whether you feel like it or not, God has sent you. This is our calling. And 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 Gideon, verse um, 15 says, Oh my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Oh God, how can you use me? I ran a red light yesterday. Oh God, how can you use me? Oh God, I'm not worthy. Oh, I'm not good enough. Oh, I'm not up to it. I can't do this. I can't do that. Oh God, oh God, oh God. How many of us are going to hush it up and listen to what the Lord says and start coming into agreement with Him? We have to quit making excuses for why we can't pray and we can't this and we can't. Oh, I just can't. I just can't. This is what Gideon is doing. And he's saying, I'm not good enough. To be used by you to deliver the people. And how many of us in this room right now feel like, well, oh, I just don't know about me. And you keep confessing everything God does not agree with. Why? Why are we doing that? Well, the Lord said unto him, surely I will be with thee, and thou shalt smite the Midianites as one man. If God's going to be with Gideon, you don't think he's going to be with you and me? Guys, look, some of you in here, I'm not trying to be cruel to you. What I'm trying to do is help you understand this. Some of you in here, you have a pathetic self-image. It stinks. It's repugnant. It's one of those, those putrefying sores. Because you just keep calling yourself that which God does not call you. And then you wonder why you, there's so much turmoil in your life. Why you just can't think straight. Why you just can't. You've got the mind of Christ. Look, it's your fault these things are like this. It's your fault that you're going through all this inner turmoil. It's your fault. Because you're, you're doing like Gideon here. Well, I can't and I'm not. Well, I don't have the money. And, and he, the Lord says, surely I'll be with you. Every one of you in here, every one of you watching, God is telling you right now, I will be with you. What did He tell us? He said, I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. He says, now look here in verse 17. Gideon says, If now I have found grace in thy sight, then show me a sign that thou talkest with me. Show me a sign. Right now. Our goal is to be used of God to deliver the people from the Midianites. Alright? Now that's symbolic. Well, what are we talking about? Delivering people from the Midianites. Another way to say that would be for today, tearing down the strongholds that have hindered the outpouring, the latter day outpouring and revival. Tearing down the strongholds. And this is just symbolic, the term Midianites. If you remember when, um, when God was dealing with Abraham and Sarah, He gave them the promise of a son. Well, they, you know, how can we have a son? You know, the deadness of Sarah's womb, and Abraham, I'm not trying to be gross here, but Abraham 
um, well, he was no longer the vigorous young man of years ago. Because at one point, Sarah even said, what? Shall I again have pleasure with my husband? Well, we know what she's talking about. So that tells us about Abraham's inabilities. And God says, you're going to have a child. And Abraham's like, what? I'm not so sure about this. Anyway, God gave them the promise of the son, of a son. And then he said, look, I'm going to help you get a hold of this. I want you to consider the stars. Can you count them? No. All right, well, that's what it's going to be like, your offspring. Then he says, okay, if that's not enough, here, now it's daytime. Look at the sand, all right? Can you count that? Well, that's how your offspring is going to be. And so every night, they could look up and they see all these stars. That, that's our offspring. Um, yeah, that's our offspring. Every morning they get up. That's our offspring. You know, don't step on them. <laughs> that's our offspring. <laughs> and he even changed their names from Abram to Abraham and from Sarai to Sarah. And when he changed the names, you know, Abraham, father of, an, you know, of, of a multitude, and Sarah, you know, mother of a multitude, I'm paraphrasing. So, in other words, what he did, he gave them a sign, and then he changed their names to do what? To change their confession. So that when they called themselves, when, when she would yell out, Abraham! Right, she's confessing who he is. She's declaring his value, declaring his worth, declaring his potential. And when he would say, Sarah, he was declaring her value. Declare, he was declaring about her what God declared about her. She was declaring about him what God declared about him. And this went on and on. But get this. <laughs> he gave them the promise. And that word was in them. And it gestated for 25 years. 25 years of looking at the stars. 25 years of looking at the sand. Decades of, of Abraham and Sarah. The confession. Every day. Listen to me. Every day. They had the vision before them. Every day. They had the confession coming out their lips. Father of a multitude, mother of a multitude. Every day. This went on for 25 years. And then, guess what? The child that couldn't be born was born. And we know what happened after that. Okay, for us, if you look here in, in Judges 6.17, Gideon says, if all of what you say is true, give me a sign. If everything you're telling me here, that I'm a mighty man of valor, give me a sign. That you're with me, give me a sign. Give me a sign. Well, God has, for us, God has given us a sign. You say, well, what in the world kind of sign has He given unto us? We've been reading it all morning. This right here, His Word. This is our sign. This is either believe it or you don't. 
When God says, greater is He that's in you than he that's in the world, then you either believe it or you don't. And if you believe the greater one is in you, then you know what? That makes you a mighty man or woman of valor. No matter what, what you may think about yourself, God will never change what He says about you. And if you want to see a personal outpouring, you better start changing what you say about yourself. When Abraham went to bed at night, he goes inside his tent. What was the last thing he saw before he walked in that tent? His multitude. See that? And so he goes in there, he lays down at night. That's the last thing he saw. I don't know how long he meditated on it every morning or every night before he went to sleep, but he saw it. It was there. Another reminder, every night, every night, every morning he gets up, gets out of that tent. What's he see? First thing, what's he see? His multitude. There it is. Every time somebody said, what's your name? My name is Abraham. He is confessing about himself. Every time he had to sign his name on a credit card slip. <laughs> Abraham. I know he didn't. I'm, you understand. Abraham, Sarah. And see, as long as we keep looking at the stars and the sand, which means His Word, all these promises. What we saw, what Jesus said, they're coming in from the north, south, east, and west. Jesus said they're coming in. Okay, God said, you're going to have a child. Jesus said they're coming into the kingdom. That's revival. They're coming in. They're coming in. They're coming in. That is Jesus' declaration to us, let alone any other passage of Scripture. That's Jesus' declaration to us. Revival's coming. These people are coming in. But how did he know? How does he know? How does he know they're coming in? Just like Gideon. Well, how do you know this? That's because Jesus knew. As you say, well, I'll tell you how he knew. Just give me a few minutes here now. I'll show you how he knew. But we have to keep looking at the stars and the sand. Right here, what he said, this word. These promises. His guarantees. And we have to change our name. From I'm no good. I'm dumb. I'm... Well, I don't... We have to change our name from how much longer is it going to take? Do you understand this? And some of you, that's exactly what you've thought over the years. How much longer? We've been believing God for all these years. We haven't, hey, we haven't been here 25 years yet. So how do you know it won't be on the 25th year? You don't know. The point I'm making is this. We have to change our name. Change what we say about ourselves. Change what we say about what God is doing. Change about, change our confession about the outpouring and the revival. If God has said, we haven't even touched on Old Testament prophecies about the outpouring and revival, but if God, you know, I will pour out. If God has said that in His Word, guys, that is supposed to be how we change our name. You know, we had a prophecy here a few minutes ago where God declared, this is a worshiping church. That's what He said. He didn't say, you're a stinky, sour church. He didn't say, you're a church of putrefying sores. Yeah, that's gross. He said, this is a worshiping church. 
That's God calling us by a name. We say the sign out front says, Grace Christian Center. And God says, yeah, and there's more to that sign that's not out there, Worshiping Church. See what I'm getting at? This has to change. And the more that we do this, we have to understand that in us, there is a gestation taking place. The gestation of an outpouring. The gestation of this revival. To the point, to the day, to where what some people say can't or won't happen, it will be birthed. That remnant that Isaiah prophesied about, that's us. Here in Judges, if you look in chapter 7, it says in verse 1, it talks, well, I'll tell you what, go, go to um, verse 3, where God's, there's like 33 people, 33,000 people show up, and God says, you know, proclaim in the ears of the people, whoever's afraid, let them go home. Well, <laughs> 22,000 people, they went home. At least they were honest. <laughs> they went home. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people are yet too many. Bring them down under the water, and I will try them for thee there. It shall be that of whom I say unto thee, this shall go with thee, the same shall go with thee. And of whomsoever I say unto thee, this shall not go with thee, the same shall not go. And he brought the people down uh, to the water, and the Lord said unto Gideon, Everyone that lappeth of the water with his dog, as a dog lappeth, um, him shalt thou set by himself. Likewise, everyone that boweth down upon his knees to drink. And the number of them that lapped, putting their hand to the mouth, were three hundred men. But all the rest of the people bowed down upon their knees to drink water. And the Lord said unto Gideon, By the three hundred men that lapped will I save you, and deliver the Midianites into the hand, uh, into thine hand, and let all the other people go, every man unto his place. Now, what's that mean? He starts out with 33,000 and ends up with 300. 300, that is what? A remnant. See that? This is the Isaiah chapter 1 remnant. This is, these are the people that make up Joel's army. The remnant. These are the ones who make up Joel's army. And then if you look in verse 16, and he divided the 300 men into three companies, and he put a trumpet in every man's hand with empty pitchers and lamps within the pitchers. And he said unto them, Look on me and do likewise. And behold, when I come to the outside of the camp, camp of the Midianites, it shall be that as I do, so shall ye do. When I blow with a trumpet... And I, I and all that are with me, then blow ye the trumpets on every side of all the camp, and say, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men that were with him came unto the outside of the camp in the beginning of the middle watch. And they, it's at night time, the middle of the night. And they had but newly set the watch, and they blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers that were in their hands. And the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers and held the lamps in their left hand and the trumpets in their right hands to blow withal, and they cried, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And they stood every man in his place round about the camp, and all the host ran and cried and fled. And it goes on and talks about how that they vanquished the enemy. But now look at this. I won't, I'll just briefly here. In verse 20, They blew the trumpets, broke the pitchers, and held the lamps in their left hand, the trumpets in the right hand to blow with all, and they cried, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. Those those pitchers, the lamp was inside the pitcher so that it covered the light. 
to where the enemy couldn't see them coming. And here's what all this represents. The breaking of the pitcher for the light to shine forth, that's the mortification of the flesh that's hindering the glory of God going forth from us, the life of God going forth. You understand what I'm talking about? The breaking of the pitcher represents the mortification of the flesh. The blowing of the trumpet, that's the praise and the worship. That's where you're worshiping God, even in the face of the enemy. You're worshiping God, even though you feel outnumbered by the enemy, even though the enemy seems to have greater armament, if you will. You're worshiping, you're praising, you're glorifying God. The sword of the Lord and of Gideon, that's the word of God. The word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword. It's the confession. It's the declaration. It's the coming into agreement with what God has said. And when we do this, what ha- this is the 300. These, this is the remnant. This is what it takes to be a part of this, this outpouring producing, revival producing remnant of Joel's army. Remnant that is Joel's army to see this latter day revival take place. Now, now remember what I was talking about, um, how that Jesus said, they're coming in from the north, south, the east, and the west. You know, how did he know that? Well, look over in John chapter 5. In Hebrews, I'll quote from Hebrews, you turn to John chapter 5. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says that we are supposed to look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Another way to say that would be look unto Jesus, our example of how things get done. Now look at this. Here's how we capture this vision of the outpouring and the revival. And he, in, uh, in John chapter 5, look at verse 19. Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do, for what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth, and he will show him greater works than these, that ye may marvel. Now look at this. Jesus says, I can do nothing but what I see the Father do. And you know, you read that and you think, I don't understand. What do you mean? Jesus, you're doing what the Father shows you that He does. And you say you can't do anything or won't do anything other than what the Father shows you that He does. And then you even say the Father loves you and shows you all things that He does. Jesus, I don't understand. What do you mean by that? Well, it's not just us. Look over in John chapter 16. In John chapter 16... Look at verse 13. Jesus says, How be it when He, the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, when the Spirit of truth has come, He will guide you into all truth, for He shall not speak of Himself, but whatsoever He shall hear, that shall He speak. Now look at this. And He will show you things to come. How did Jesus know that? Because the Holy Spirit had shown Him. Jesus said, I can only do what I see the Father doing. The Holy Spirit gave Jesus a a vision, revelation of what he was supposed to do here on earth. That's how he knew. That's how he knew that he could walk up to somebody and say, receive your sight. Because Jesus had already received the sight of that person receiving their sight. 
Are you getting a hold of this? Jesus was in such communion with Father God and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was giving him a an inner vision, if you will, however you want to describe it. He was showing him what the Father does, and then Jesus just went about and did what he had seen. He just says right in there, what we just read in John chapter 5, I can only do what the Father shows me, what I see my Father doing. Then he turns right around and he says, how be it when he, the Holy Spirit, comes. Now let me paraphrase this. He's going to do for you the same kind of thing he's done for me. He's going to show you things to come. In other words, He'll give you a vision of what the Father does. He'll give you a vision of what I do. Because I said, if you believe in me, the works I do, you shall do, you shall do them also. He says, and the Holy Spirit is going to give you a vision of these things happening. The problem is, we seal ourselves off from receiving those visions of the Holy Spirit of doing the works of Jesus, and then we wonder why in the world is nothing going on. Jesus is saying the Holy Spirit wants to give you the vision of the outpouring. He wants to give you the vision of the glory. He wants to give you the vision of revival. He wants to show us these things. He wants to work in us, to develop within us that inward vision of these things happening. He wants us to see people being healed when we lay hands on them. Remember when Jesus was talking to, um, oh, it was one of the the, uh, apostles, where um, he said, yeah, I saw you when you were sitting under the tree. Remember that? He said, and the guy said, how in the world did you know that? That's because the Holy Spirit gave Jesus the vision of that man sitting under that tree. And he says, behold, a man in whom there is no guile. How would he know that? The Holy Spirit gave him the vision of that man. And it's the same thing the Holy Spirit wants to do for us. He wants to give us this vision of the outpouring. He wants to give us this vision of this revival. And the more time that we spend in fellowship with him... We, look, you can go to him and say, okay, Holy Spirit, I'm asking you to give me the visions of what I need to see. Just like you did with Jesus. Help me see, inside, help me see what it is that I need to see for myself, for this outpouring, for revival. And you don't think he's going to do it? Here's part of the problem. We haven't known he wants to do this. But this is a part of what's going to happen with with that remnant of Joel's army. The Holy Spirit is going to move in us. Guys, we need to keep pressing into God to receive this. We need to change our name, if you will. The confession has to line up with what God has declared. Every single one of you, you need to change what you say about yourself. I'm just, you know, since this seems to be a sermon of honesty... It really irritates me when I hear you talk about yourselves in ways that don't line up with the Word of God. Because you've been here long enough, you should know better. And some of you are so fragile emotionally that if I attempt to bring correction in that, you're going to get offended. And you're, you're probably, no, you may leave the church because of it and accuse me of being harsh and critical. What's well, not being harsh and critical? Again, you need to grow up. And I, I mean, you need to grow up and stop pussyfooting around with all this poor. You have a victim mentality. And you are not 
who the world says you are. You are not who your family says you are. You're not the imaginary person that you've created for yourself. That is not who you are. Stop saying that you're dumb. Stop saying that you're stupid. Stop saying you can't. Stop saying you don't know how. Stop saying, stop it. Grow up into God. Receive the vision from the Holy Spirit of what God wants to show you about your potential because you are a mighty valor, a mighty person of valor before the Lord. And God's not going to change that confession about you. And God is with you. And not only that, God has sent you. We have been sent, glory to God, to deliver people out of the hands of the Midianites. Praise the Lord. Would you please stand?